Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Regardless of Omicron, the virus is back on the march. The lead starts right now. The Biden White House announcing a slew of new steps today to try to slow the spread of coronavirus, including the new variant, while also trying to urge folks not to panic. And President Biden needs her vote to get his agenda passed. This hour, Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona sits down with CNN for a rare national TV interview. And then red flags raised a Michigan sheriff revealing new details today about why the teenage suspect's parents were called to the principal's office just hours before the deadly high school shooting. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with the health lead and the Biden administration saying it's pulling out all the stops to accelerate our way out of this pandemic and slow the spread of Omicron, that new variant that health officials still know so little about. New evidence today suggests, however, that the new variant clearly is spreading in the U.S. President Biden went to the National Institutes of Health this afternoon to announce his new plan, launching a national campaign for boosters, setting up family vaccination sites, expanding COVID testing, making those at-home test kits free, either reimbursed by insurance or provided by the government for those who do not have insurance. Also today, those proposed CDC rules for international travel became Official. And now everyone flying to the United States, including American citizens who are fully vaccinated, needs proof of a negative COVID test taken one day before departure instead of three days. CNN's Nick Watts starts us off today with this more aggressive approach. I'm announcing today that all inbound international travelers must test within one day of departure regardless of their vaccination status or nationality. One plank of the president's winter action plan announced this afternoon to fight the coronavirus and its new Omicron variant, which we now know is here. A second case confirmed this morning in Minnesota. Mild symptoms now recovered. A vaccinated man recently returned from a large anime convention in New York City. So potentially now it's on both coasts, and that means we're going to continue to see um, the number of cases rise. The first confirmed case was yesterday in San Francisco, a fully vaccinated but unboosted individual recently returned from South Africa. Also mild symptoms and doing well. All close contacts have been contacted and all close contacts thus far have tested negative. We still don't know for sure if Omicron is more transmissible or significantly evades the vaccines, but... There's every reason to believe that that kind of increase that you get with the boost would be helpful, at least in preventing severe disease of a variant like Omicron. Right now, the Delta variant is still dominant worldwide and here in the U.S., and here's where we are, averaging a whopping 85,000-plus new infections every day and 911 deaths. 
This winter, we're going to make free at home tests more available to Americans than ever before. More than 80% of counties right now have high or substantial community transmission. We're going to get to 60 teams ready to deploy in states experience a surge in cases over the course of this winter. Well over 100 million eligible Americans are still not fully vaccinated, let alone boosted. We're expanding our national booster campaign to provide booster shots to all eligible adults. We're expanding our efforts to vaccinate children ages five and up. Back in January, two-thirds of Americans felt optimistic about vaccinations. That's now less than half. 31% of us are now angry about the current status of vaccination in this country. And this is, of course, a global problem. The clue is in what we call it, a pandemic. And today, President Biden also pledged to send more vaccine doses to other countries that need them. Meantime, the World Health Organization is saying it's unfair that the U.S. and other countries have placed restrictions on flights coming out of South Africa. They say South Africa is basically being penalized for doing the right thing, for identifying this variant and telling us all about it. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Let's discuss CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House, Pete Montine at Dulles International Airport with the travel angle, and Dr. Ashish Jha, the dean of Brown University School of Public Health. Caitlin, first to you, there's the, the public safety part of this new plan. Obviously, politics also plays a role, communication. This is kind of crisis management 101. Get ahead of the issue as we see this new variant emerge. Yeah, because, I mean, this has been the issue for President Biden since he took office, the main issue of his presidency, he has said. And so, of course, uh, the concern here is not just the small steps that he's taking or the big measures that he's taking when it comes to what they're doing to fight COVID-19. It's also that he's in charge and that he is uh, controlling this. He is taking steps to combat this new variant. Because, Jake, you've seen the president's poll numbers. Of course, there's a divide when it comes to Democrats and Republicans and how the president's been handling this. But look at the number here when it comes to independents. 39% approve of how he's handling it so far based on this Kaiser Family Foundation poll. 52% disapprove. That number has fallen pretty sharply. And I think what that means is what the White House is doing here is trying to apply the lessons that they learned from that Delta variant back in June when his numbers were much higher than Jake. Of course, we saw the Delta variant sweep across the United States and his poll numbers go down. They're trying to show here that while we still don't know a lot about this new variant, we are taking steps to do what we can right now while we're trying to evaluate it. That's right. In July, of course, President Biden announced independence from the virus on Independence Day. Pete, uh, stricter rules for international travel is part of this new rollout, including mandatory COVID testing a day before flying to the U.S. To the US. I, I guess I have two questions here. Are airlines prepared to require travelers to get a test and a result one day before they leave wherever they are in the world, I don't even know if that's possible to get a test and a result within one day before a travel everywhere in the United States. Well, airlines say that they are prepared because they've been doing this for months already. They were already required to get proof of a negative coronavirus test for somebody coming into the United States within three days of their departure. Now, that passenger has to show proof of a negative coronavirus test within one day of their departure. The real onus here is not necessarily on airlines, 
but on passengers to find the proper test, to find a testing site. We've seen more and more of those pop up at airports across the country and internationally, even some here at Dallas International Airport. But the big issue now is what the industry is saying. They're really chafing at all of these travel restrictions and any change here because they feel that any new uptick in restrictions for those traveling internationally will make their numbers go down. We have seen a really strong and robust travel period throughout the Thanksgiving season. Big numbers, 2.5 million people uh, on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So they just don't want to lose that really tenuous, really thin thread that they have here on a travel rebound. And they think that this could really get in the way of that. And Dr. Ja, much of this seems designed to get ahead of the new Omicron variant, but researchers still don't know much about it. They don't know how easily it spreads, whether it evades vaccines. Without knowing that, do you think these measures may be premature? Jake, first of all, thanks for having me back. I don't think they're premature. Look, we don't know all the facts, but the little that we do know is pretty concerning. And so we can wait until all the data is in, and then we're going to be behind the eight ball. I'd much rather be ahead of the game here. If it turns out that this is not all that transmissible, that there's not much vaccine evasion, we can always pull back. But I'd much rather be in that position than to be playing catch up. And Caitlin, the president is making the big push for booster shots. He might have an uphill battle convincing many Americans that they need one. Sometimes, Jake, this comes down to party lines, which, of course, unsurprising. That's something the president talked about today, the political divide here. But if you look at the numbers of all adults, who is more likely or is planning on getting a booster, you can see the discrepancy and the gap here when it comes to Republicans, 36 percent. Democrats, 77%. When you look at the number of Republicans who are already vaccinated, Jake, that number is a little bit higher. But that is the issue that's facing President Biden here as he's dealing with this. And I also think part of that is the lagging effort of the confusing messaging around booster shots, something that people inside the White House and the administration will acknowledge was an issue. It just now uh, had the CDC change the language to say that everyone over 18 should get a booster. Before it was they may get a booster unless you're in a certain category. So they are also trying to get the messaging right here on boosters so those 100 million eligible people who have not yet gotten one can go get one. And, and Pete, there, there has been talk, although no indication from the Biden administration that they want to do it, uh, of requiring proof of vaccination, uh, not just proof uh, of a negative COVID test for either international travel or even domestic travel. What do the airlines think about that? Airlines hate the notion of having this for international travel and domestic travel. If it went to domestic travel, one top industry official tells me it would just clobber the big numbers that they have seen lately. Right now, it is required for foreign nationals to show proof that they are fully vaccinated to their airline before coming into the United States. And Customs and Border Patrol officials here at airports, they've also been required to show proof of a negative coronavirus test. A bit of a one-two punch there. Now we are seeing that gap get a little bit narrowed. It was three days, now one day. So we will see if these restrictions stay in place. And the Biden administration not really hinting at anything new just yet. And airlines and the industry would like to keep it that way. Dr. Jot, today COVID cases in South Africa jumped by more than 7,000 in one week. Health officials do not yet know if it's Omicron, that new variant causing the spread. But do you see any other possible logical explanation? No, I think it likely is. We're seeing it particularly in the, in the state of, of uh, South Africa where Omicron is dominant. I'm pretty worried that this really does show Omicron is widespread there and that we're starting to see hospitalizations rise as well. So there's some concerning features coming out of South Africa. All right. Thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, Omicron and the vaccine. So many unanswered questions right now. We're going to talk to one of the top 
vaccine experts in the country. And then, could your next flight run on scraps of food? CNN gets a ride into the future. Stay with us. And we're back with the health lead and vastly different responses to this new variant, Omicron. In Germany today, a national lockdown for everyone who is unvaccinated. Japan taking a strict approach to travel, closing its borders to all non-Japanese citizens. Here in the United States, President Biden rolled out his nine-point plan today, ramping up booster shots and testing, only limiting travel from certain countries. Let's bring in Rick Bright. He led the Trump administration's vaccine development effort. He resigned after a whistleblower complaint saying his early warnings about the pandemic had been ignored. Uh, Rick, good to see you again. We should note after the election, you briefly joined President Biden's COVID advisory board. What do you make of this new response plan announced today? Is it enough, do you think? Jake, thanks for having me back on. Um, Like many plans, they're just plans. It's a great start. I think there's some great points. I mean, it's surprising to see some of those points being rolled out as a new idea two years into a pandemic. I think the most important thing we need to see in America and across the world is action. We need to see leadership. We need to see coordination and coordinated action around the world. This Omicron variant, Jake, is a consequence of not having the world vaccinated soon enough. And we're going to continue seeing this until we put vaccine equity at the top of our list, not just donating a few doses or even a billion doses, but really putting the resources in place on the ground around the world to get those doses into arms, not on the tarmac, so we can stop this virus from mutating and coming into new variants and spreading around the world. Yeah, in fact, I mean, experts like you have been saying if the United States and other countries didn't do more to immunize the entire world, this was what was going to happen, and now we are seeing it happening. Um, You're an immunologist. You've built your career researching vaccines. From the little we do know about Omicron, and I realize... There's still a lot we don't. But from what we do know, do you think our current vaccines will be able to hold up against it? From what I would speculate, Jake, like you said, we don't have a lot of data yet. But it's still the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the vaccines are made on the spike protein, a major protein of that virus. There are a lot of changes and mutations in that spike region, which is what comprises the immunity that we make from the vaccines. I would, though, be very surprised if there was no immunity from our current vaccines to this new variant. I would actually be um, pretty confident that we're going to have some level of protection, some level of efficacy, especially from very severe hospitalized disease or um, from deaths. And that's sort of what we're seeing playing out right now. We're on the leading edge, so I don't want to get right. be too confident just yet. But right now, we're not seeing a lot of hospitalized cases or deaths just yet from this Omicron variant being reported anywhere. Most of the cases we're able to see are in milder infections if it's in a vaccinated person, which, again, emphasizes the need for getting vaccinated as quickly as you can. Indeed. So the president of Moderna is now trying to clarify comments by the the company's CEO this week, who initially said he did not think the existing Moderna vaccine would be uh, effective against the the new variant. Here's the clarification. Take a listen. I think some of the word choice may not have been optimal. It seems likely that the Omicron variant is going to make a dent in our vaccine efficacy. In fact, in all vaccine efficacy. And the combination of mutations that have been brought together there, we think are going to increase the possibility of immune escape. Now, the one thing we don't know for sure 
is how big is that dent? How big is that decrease in vaccine efficacy? In reality, does anyone really know? We don't, Jake. And that's that's really uh, a, the danger we're in. We have been in through this pandemic is science by press release. Comments made by CEOs of large companies who have a lot to gain from moving the market ahead of a data set. We need to make sure that we don't get overly excited about um, any data on either side right now. We should focus on what we can do to protect ourselves and our family from SARS-CoV-2, be it the Delta variant or the Omicron variant. Getting fully vaccinated with the booster dose, and I just got mine two weeks ago. Wearing your mask. I'm in Kansas right now for a family event, Jake. I went to the Walmart to buy some rapid tests. There were only two people in that entire Walmart store that I saw in Kansas with a mask on. That's extremely concerning with the Delta variant and more concerning with what we don't yet know about Omicron. People, please wear your mask and up over your nose and keep your distance and try not to breathe someone else's air right now. I want to ask you uh, about this controversy involving former President Trump and his COVID diagnosis from last year. The Guardian newspaper uh, detailed an excerpt from an upcoming book from Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff and a real Trump loyalist. And Meadows reportedly wrote that Trump had tested positive for COVID three days before his debate with Joe Biden. This week, Trump called that reporting fake news. Meadows now apparently agrees that it's fake news, bizarrely enough. Take a listen. Well, the, the president's right. It's fake news. Uh, if, you, if you actually read the, the book, uh, the context of it, uh, that story outlined a false positive. Uh, literally had, had a test, had uh, two other tests after that that showed that uh, he didn't have COVID during the debate. I mean, we, we should note that it was days later that Trump acknowledged that he had COVID. You resigned from your post at the National Institutes of Health the same week that Trump went to Walter Reed. He was basically medevac there uh, with COVID. What, what do you make of all this? Well, actually, the chaos doesn't surprise me coming from those individuals in the Trump administration. But, Jake, I would say that if anyone, especially the president of the United States, Knowingly went into and put people at risk, gold star families, other people at the at the at the um, debates, et cetera, at risk, knowing that he could potentially even be positive for SARS-CoV-2, even with a, an initial test. I think that's absolutely unconscionable and it's extremely concerning for any individual, any human being, let alone a president of the United States to put people at such risk. I don't know if we'll ever know the truthful answer to that scenario. From what I'm hearing about it, it doesn't seem like they were following the testing protocols very accurately, but I wasn't there, as you said. But I would say unconscionable act of, of putting people's lives at risk for a leader, a world leader such as the president. All right, Rick Bright, thank you so much. Hope you have fun at the uh, family event in Kansas. Thanks for joining us. Coming up next to CNN exclusive with one of the Democratic senators who is key to the Biden agenda passing. What is the message that Senator Kirsten Sinema has for Democratic Party leaders? Stay with us. Topping our politics lead, an exclusive and rare glimpse inside the thinking of Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema. Democrats desperately need her on board if they're going to reach their self-imposed deadline and pass the president's Social Safety Net Act, the so-called Build Back Better Act, by Christmas. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox joins me now live. Lauren, 
Uh, what insights did Senator Sinema have to share with you about where she stands on this upcoming vote and the president's agenda in general? Well, Jake, she is one of the most powerful, if not mystifying, Democrats in the U.S. Senate, especially given the fact that it is a tied chamber right now. But she, while she was part of building that huge infrastructure bill and getting it across the finish line, she's not quite ready to say yes to Biden's Build Back Better plan. You have met directly with the president, perhaps more than any other senator in the Democratic Party, maybe aside from Joe Manchin. What lessons have you learned? What kind of negotiator is the president? And is it hard for you to tell the president, no, I can't do that? President Biden served in the Senate for a long time, so he knows how negotiations work. And he also, during this process, called me repeatedly and asked me to continue working with Senator Rob Portman and others in the G10 to find this bipartisan agreement and showed a real commitment to wanting this bipartisan achievement, which we've which we've accomplished. And I think the big challenge in front of us is for us to all work together in an accountable and transparent way to actually implement this law. Schumer has said he wants to vote on Build Back Better, that broader social safety net bill, before Christmas break. Are you prepared to vote yes when that comes to the floor? Well, I don't set the schedule for the Senate floor, and I'm always prepared to vote and to vote for what's right for the interests of Arizona. I personally believe that um, the best way to create legislation is to be thoughtful and careful so that we're crafting legislation that truly represents the interests that we want to achieve and that creates a benefit and helps people all across Arizona and the country. So that's what I'm working on right now. So it doesn't sound like you're quite a yes yet on the version that just passed the House of Representatives. What changes do you want to make? Well, folks know I don't negotiate in the press, so I'm not going to do that with you. I know one of the things that you made clear very early in the negotiation with the president and your majority leader was that you were not going to support raising the corporate tax rate up single point. Did you feel like at any point they weren't taking your comments seriously, given the fact that they were promising for a long time that this was going to be part of the bill? You know, I don't really spend much time thinking about what other people are saying publicly. What I really want to focus on is how to get to a solution and solve a problem that matters to everyday folks in Arizona. And people back home in Arizona know that I am committed to ensuring that any legislation we pass retains America's competitiveness. So I won't support any legislation that increases burdens on Arizona or American businesses and reduces our ability to compete either domestically or globally. And so I want to make sure that if we are crafting legislation, we're doing it in a lean and efficient way that's fiscally responsible and doesn't impact things like inflation or make our businesses less competitive. So You've been criticized from progressives who say you're standing in the way of what we've been campaigning on for years, whether that's repealing the 2017 tax cuts, whether that is changing voting rights laws. What do you say to progressives back home who are disappointed in the job that you're doing here? Well, I'm serving in the exact way that I've campaigned on over the last near decade that I've served in Washington, D.C. And when I ran for the United States Senate in 2018, I told the folks of Arizona what I would do, that I would come to the Senate, try to find bipartisan solutions, be an independent voice for Arizona, and always put everyday people in Arizona first. I would say that's exactly what I'm doing. One of the ways that you negotiate in talking with your colleagues is that you're pretty forthcoming about where you stand on something. We talked about the corporate tax rate. 
Why do you think it is that your leadership sometimes overpromises? Do you think that that's a problem for voters and for the Democratic Party? I can only speak for myself. But what I can say is this. I would never promise something to the American people that I can't deliver. And I think it's not responsible for elected leaders to do that. The concern I have is that, first, it's not very honest. So you should just be honest. Um, that's something my parents taught me when I was very young, and it stuck. Some of your colleagues, some of them progressives, think that you're kind of an enigma, that they're not sure where you stand on any one issue while you're in the middle of a negotiation. Do you think that that's a fair criticism of you? I think I'm very direct. And I am very upfront uh, when I talk to folks about what I believe in, what I can support, and what I can't support. So I think there are some people who just don't like what they're hearing, and maybe they use other terms to describe it. But uh, folks in Arizona know that I've always been a straight shooter and always will be. Would you be willing to vote with Democrats to hold up the president's mandates? Well, I'm not going to tell you those things. Uh, what I will do, though, is make sure that I'm voting in the interests of Arizonans. Now, folks back in Arizona know that I'm a strong supporter of this vaccine. I encourage all Arizonans to also get vaccinated so that we can return to the lives that we love and be able to share those important moments of both joy and sorrow with our family members. Jake, she's making it clear there she doesn't negotiate in public. She is not going to give specifics about what it is in the Build Back Better plan that passed the House that she doesn't like right this second. Those are negotiations that are happening behind the scenes. She's making that very clear there. But she's also defending the fact that she says, look, I've always told Arizona voters exactly where I stand. They sent me to the Senate. I'm doing the job I think that they want me to be doing. And if they don't like it or if some people don't like it, tough. Lauren, did Senator Cinema share any thoughts about Senator Joe Manchin, who's the other moderate Democrat, maybe conservative Democrat, currently perceived as holding up President Biden's agenda? Well, these two senators often get lumped together because they're both moderates from states across the country, yet they operate so differently. Senator Cinema doesn't get into details about whether or not she's having private conversations with Senator Manchin, whether there's any piece of the Build Back Better plan that she is trying to get Manchin to support. She did make it clear she's supportive of paid family leave. We know that that is a program that Senator Manchin does not want included in the bill, but she would not get into details about how or whether she sort of lobbies her fellow members, Jake. All right, Lauren Fox, thank you so much. New information about why the parents of the accused Michigan school shooter were called to a meeting at the school just hours before their son allegedly went on a rampage. Stay with us. In our national lead, disturbing new details about the suspected gunman in Tuesday's deadly Michigan high school shooting. Authorities say that 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly's behavior had been so concerning to teachers that his parents had been forced to come to the school just hours before the attack. He faces charges of murder and terrorism. Prosecutors have indicated they're also considering charging his parents who owned the firearm used in the shooting. An announcement on that could come within the next 24 hours. CNN's Alexander Field joins us now live from Oxford, Michigan. And Alexander, the sheriff is revealing some new information about the suspect's prior behavior. Uh, That's right, Jake. We are learning from the Oakland County Sheriff that the school is saying that the suspected shooter did not have a previous history of displaying any behavioral problems, any disturbing or concerning behavior. But all of that seems to have changed earlier this week on the day before the shooting and then on the morning of the shooting. Not one, but two teachers raising some alarm bells, deciding they needed to act on what he was saying or doing. Listen to what the sheriff had to say. 
day prior to the tragedy, uh, a teacher in a classroom where he was a student saw and heard something that she felt was disturbing um, in terms of his behavior. The day of the shooting, uh, a different teacher in a different classroom saw some behavior that they felt was uh, concerning, and they brought the child uh, down to um, an office, had a meeting with school officials, called in the parents, and ultimately was determined um, that uh, he could go back into class. And Jake, investigators aren't describing the nature of that behavior at this time. We have heard the prosecutor say there is another piece of evidence that hasn't been shared with the public that is also disturbing in nature. A lot of the question and the focus right now, of course, on why he was allowed to return to class and whether law enforcement should have been alerted at that time, Jake. And Alexandra, investigators also say they've discovered evidence proving that the shooting was in fact premeditated. This is a 15-year-old who's been charged as an adult with four counts of first-degree murder, and that is very much because they believe that this was an attack that he had thought about, premeditated, plotted. They're looking at evidence that includes writings from the suspect. They say they recovered a journal in which he talks about shooting up the school. They say they also recovered two cell phone videos in which he talks about shooting and killing students at Oxford High School. Investigators are also focusing, of course, on the weapon that was used. They say it was a semi-automatic handgun that they believe was purchased by the suspect's father just four days before the attack. And this afternoon, Jake, we're learning that charges against both parents are still being considered and that we could hear an announcement from the prosecutor about that within the next 24 hours. All right, Alexander Field in Oxford, Michigan. Thanks so much. Let's discuss this with retired FBI profile uh, Candace DeLong. She also has a great podcast called Killer Psyche. Uh, Candace, thanks for joining us. Two different teachers raised concerns about the suspected gunman's behavior this week, including on the day of the shooting. We don't know what that was. Uh, and obviously, kids act out. What do you what do you make of this? Uh, do you think the school did enough here? Well, the FBI, along with the Secret Service, did extensive research into this kind of thing. What they call active shooters, which in, would include school shooters, and they they were able to identify three or f- three or four things that we see behaviors that we see happening in most of these cases. And one of them is, especially in school kids, high school kids, that um, close to the time of the shooting, they will be exhibiting odd or behavior enough so that people will go, what's going on with this? That's, what's going on? Can be aggressive, aggressive physically, aggressive verbally, verbally, could be just simply inappropriate. And what we do know is on the day of and the day before this attack, two different teachers were concerned enough to bring it to the attention of the principal and then finally to bring in the parents. Yeah. So we don't know. I'm sure we will find out. Two videos were recovered from um, the cell phone of the suspected gunman in which he talked about shooting and killing students. What, what does that indicate to you? Oftentimes, um, well, it could be a few different things. Oftentimes, shooters do this, especially teenagers, before the event, and they may sometimes release it. It can be viewed as attention-seeking behavior, but the FBI research into this, they have a name for it, and it's called leakage. And, And that leakage, which is a way that the shooter before the attack is somehow or other trying to 
get a message out, either a threat or a cry for help or something. In this particular case, the shooter did not display these on social media. The, the investigators found them on, on his phone. I, I guess one of the questions is, how do we prevent these types of things from happening? How, parents, uh, do they need to play a, a stronger role in the lives of their kids? Uh, if, they ha- if they live with kids, do they need to lock up their guns? W- what are some of your more general suggestions? Yes and yes to your questions. Yes, parents need, especially with high schoolers, with adolescents, uh, that's a tough time in a kid's life. And um, if things aren't going their way, maybe they're being bullied, and I'm not saying this kid was, or they're having a hard time at school, uh, various disappointments. What one thing we do know research has said is in the year leading up to the shooting, oftentimes people had at least three major stressful events. If you've got kids at home uh, that seem to be having a problem or you're the least bit concerned and you've got a gun in the house, get the gun out of the house. Another thing, uh, I know a lot of parents are reticent to go in their their uh, child's room, their kid's room, and look around maybe for anything that would be indicative of why is their child being reclusive or, or maybe violent or not getting along with his siblings. Your child's room is your room. You're letting them use it while they live there. And you may find something in your room that, and then if you do, do something about it. Don't just figure, well, it'll go away. No, it may not go away. So turning to another tragedy in the minute we have left, the suspect in last month's Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre just gave an interview uh, in which he said he feels like he's being treated as a monster. He's being demonized. This is someone who mowed down at least 60 people killing six. What does that tell you? Well, it's my understanding uh, on the little bit that we know about him so far as there were some some various previous incidents of him being violent with girlfriends, displaying, that's not so unusual in our society today, but that this person in particular was kind of frightening to other people. And he may be paranoid and he, in that statement, I'm being treated as a monster, I'm being viewed as a monster. Well, you did a monstrous thing, but he may not see reality as reality is, which means he may be psychotic. Candace DeLong, check out her great podcast, Killer Psyche. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming up, don't blink, Russia and the United States face off in a key sit-down. Topping our world lead today, a critical diplomatic meeting between Russia and the United States today produced no concrete path forward as Western nations grow increasingly concerned that Russia is on the brink of invading Ukraine. CNN's Alex Marquardt's traveling with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who spoke to reporters after meeting with his Russian counterpart. Alex. Jake, this highly anticipated meeting between the U.S. Secretary of State and his Russian counterpart here in Stockholm was serious and sober, according to Secretary Antony Blinken, but it did not result in any sort of concrete agreement that would lead to the immediate de-escalation of this crisis, nor did Secretary Blinken lay out explicitly what the serious consequences would be for Russia should they decide to invade Ukraine. Blinken did tell the Russians, both before this meeting and in it, that there would be serious costs from the U.S. and its allies if Russia does decide to go ahead with military action. 
So the goal for now is to keep these diplomatic discussions going in the coming days. And Blinken said today that there could be a call soon between Presidents Biden and Putin. Take a listen. Foreign Minister Lavrov and I had candid exchanges on our different perspectives. We agreed to report those back to our presidents, uh, who may have the opportunity to speak directly uh, in the near future. So the two sides will continue to talk. A senior State Department official today told reporters that there would be intense diplomacy in the coming days with the hope that eventually Russia would pull back its forces and agree to a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine. For its part, Russia says that it is acting in self-defense and that its security is threatened as NATO moves eastwards towards its border. Blinken says it's not clear whether or not Russia has made up its mind to invade Ukraine, but that it has put in place the capacity to do so and to do so quickly. What the U.S. and NATO are seeing right now is very similar to what they saw back in 2014. And that, of course, is when Russia did invade Ukraine and annexed Crimea. Jake? Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. Coming up, we're going to take you inside the hunt for the Omicron variant here in the United States. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a standoff between China and two top sports organizations taking dramatically different tactics. And at the center of it all, a missing tennis champion. Plus, grab the canola. United Airlines just flew a plane fueled by corn and sugar, and CNN went along for the ride for what could become the future of flight. And leading this hour, President Biden this afternoon unveiling yet another major new COVID strategy as the Omicron variant hits the United States. The president announcing expanded testing measures, including free at-home tests and stricter traveling, stricter testing for all travelers to the United States. President Biden also pushing increased vaccine and booster outreach. The White House is attempting to walk something of a tightrope here, taking aggressive action while also minimizing panic about the new variant. CNN's Caitlin Collins breaks down President Biden's new plan and how it might affect your family. With the still mysterious Omicron variant now in the U.S., today President Biden laid out a new strategy to fight the pandemic. My plan I'm announcing today pulls no punches in the fight against COVID-19. At the National Institutes of Health, Biden attempted a balancing act, preventing panic while taking aggressive steps to combat the spread of Omicron. We move forward in the face of COVID-19 and the Delta variant, and we'll move forward in the face of Omicron variant as well. Biden will impose stricter testing requirements on U.S.-bound travelers, extend TSA's mask mandate, launch mobile family vaccine clinics, move to require private insurers to pay the cost of at-home tests, and boost access for those without it. There are some caveats to Biden's new campaign. Given insurance won't pay for past test purchases, and the rule likely won't go into effect for at least six weeks. We expect to be uh, have the final rules on this and have this implemented in mid-January, so I expect additional details about how it will work and the functioning of it will be out in that timeline. Americans are currently split on Biden's handling of the pandemic, with 44 percent approving while 48 percent disapprove. The Kaiser Family Foundation survey finding that most fully vaccinated adults in the U.S. plan to get a booster, but nearly one in five say they probably or definitely won't, despite CDC recommendations. We need to be ready. Today, Biden making this appeal to stop the pandemic from being so political. I know COVID-19 has been very divisive in this country. It's become a political issue, which is a sad, sad commentary. It shouldn't be, but it has been. This is a moment we can put the devices behind us, I hope. 
The president's attempts to mandate vaccines in some capacities has hit a slew of legal challenges and led to a political fight with Republicans on Capitol Hill. While my existing federal vaccination requirements are being reviewed by the courts, this plan does not expand or add to those mandates. Now, Jake, we should note that when it comes to those stricter testing requirements, going from 72 hours before you get on a flight to go to the United States to 24 hours, it's not clear when that is going to go into effect. Officials have said potentially early next week, but they have not put a specific date on it yet as the CDC is still drafting that order. Though, of course, that is a big question and a big factor for people who are traveling on those international flights to the United States. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks, Caitlin. Here to discuss this all is Andy Slavitt, the former White House senior advisor, for coronavirus response. Andy, thanks for joining us. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki today defended the president's plan, saying, quote, we're pulling out all of the stops to protect Americans. Earlier in the show, Rick Bright, who was previously part of the Biden COVID advisory board, said in the last, you know, he he doesn't understand why some of these plans are just now being rolled out two years into the pandemic. Why pull out all the stops now in December 2021? Well, I was very excited about what the president announced today. I think what he's making clear to the public is we have the tools and we're going to aggressively build on what we've started to get more tests available to people uh, effectively at no cost, whether through a community health center or through their insurance plan, uh, that we're going to push boosters aggressively. And I think one thing that uh, Caitlin may have mentioned is that they're now committing to sending 200 million more doses of vaccines uh, overseas in the next uh, 100 days. Uh, they've already sent about 200 million, including 90 million to Africa. So it was pleased to see the, Af- the, the president come out with a really comprehensive plan. Critics accused the Biden administration have, of having been caught flat-footed by the Delta variant, uh, given how fast that spread in the U.S. Do you think that this new nine-step plan uh, is, is partly influenced by that to avoid facing those kind of criticisms? Well, I think there's no question that this is a rubber meets the road, very aggressive, very assertive plan, which tells people we don't need to panic. We have these tools. I'm going to reserve my criticism for Ted Cruz and the Republicans in the Senate who are basically telling their constituents, hey, don't worry so much about getting vaccinated. In fact, we're going to we're going to stop the government from requiring you to get vaccinated. The message that that sends versus the message that the president's sending is 180 degrees. And right now, I wish everyone would pull together and say, let's go, let's fight this aggressively before it starts spreading over the course of the winter. One of the steps announced by President Biden is expanding free at-home testing for all Americans, which the White House hopes to implement as soon as mid-January. The insurance companies would reimburse people for at-home testing. But we we are nearly two years into this pandemic, uh, and President Biden has been in office for almost a year why are we still talking about expanding testing? Why was this? Uh, look, I, my expectations for the previous administration are what they are. But, but how was this not a day one priority uh, for the Biden team? Well, when the president uh, moved, came into office, there were zero um, at-home tests approved in the U.S. Today, there are eight. Um, in September, he committed about $3 billion to ramp up manufacturing. Uh, that is going to basically quadruple the number of tests from late summer uh, till December. I think it's a positive sign. Now he's basically saying we've got to make them more available and we've got to make them more available equity. One of the things that's happening now, Jake, as you might know, is in certain communities, you know, people in well-off communities, they take these tests pretty frequently because, you know, $10 is nothing for them to go see their friends and go t- over the holidays. The problem is in many communities, they just can't afford $10 uh, to go get a rap at home test. So this push to lower costs, increase manufacturing, 
uh, and require coverage is the right combination. President Biden declared independence from the virus on July 4th. You had left the White House by then. At the time, were you worried that that was a premature declaration? Well, at the time, I mean, if we think about where we all were at that point in time, we were about 10,000 cases a day. Um, we had a large por- portion of the country vaccinated. And indeed, what the president was saying was, hey, it's 4th of July. Let's go. We should be able to gather for small barbecues with friends. And indeed, that happened. What I think everybody didn't see was how rapidly and more aggressively Delta would come into the country. So, look, we made that mistake. I made that mistake. I underestimated um, what would come from Delta. Uh, you know, people, people can say today that they might have predicted Delta, but I can tell you all during 2020, very few people said we're going to see a worse uh, variant in 2021. Now I think we, we see that case and I don't think we're going to make that mistake again. So um, I, I applaud the, the president for being aggressive today and trying to get out ahead of things. There are questions about how this reimbursement uh, from, by insurance companies for at-home tests is going to work. Um, Biden said it's going to be covered by insurance. It makes it sound like Americans are going to have to front the cost and then, and then try, you know, right into their insurance company. I guess a, a question that the average voter might have is why doesn't the Biden administration just make these free to pick up at pharmacies or doctor's offices? Well, if I were, first of all, there are 50 million free tests available in community uh, clinics around the country. I think t- telling the insurance companies they've got to participate here, that it is in their interest to keep people healthy and not have COVID spread is a smart thing. Further, if I were in the White House right now, I'd be calling the insurance company CEOs and saying, why don't you buy in bulk from the test manufacturers and send them to people's homes? You're going to pay for them anyway. Send them to people's homes so it's much easier. That's what I'd be doing between now and and the middle of early January. I'd be seeking to get buy-in from these insurance companies to do the right thing, to take aggressive action for the period of this emergency. There's this new analysis today uh, by the CNN health team finding that since vaccines have become widely available, the risk of dying from COVID is more than 50 percent higher in red states that voted for Trump in 2020 than it is in blue states that voted for Biden. That basically means the people who need to hear President Biden's message about going to get vaccinated, going to get the booster shot, a lot of them are not listening. How do you change that? Well, this will go back to Caitlin's reporting when he talks about, you know, Ted Cruz, Ron Johnson threatening to shut down the government if we don't get rid of vaccine mandates. The, the message he's, they're sending is not what they should be doing, which is ideally standing shoulder to shoulder with the president and saying, hey, this is bad everywhere. We can fight about anything we want to in politics. We can argue over other things, but we, none of us want anybody to die. And for a party that has been willing, not willing to lift a finger to help fight the pandemic, they're going to a great deal of effort to fight people who are fighting the pandemic. And that just doesn't make sense. And so they should partner up here because people in their own communities, as you just said, are the ones paying the heavy price. Well, they don't seem to care. I guess what, my question is what more can be, you're not going to get the people you mentioned to act in a reasonable and responsible fashion. So what, what can be done beyond that? I'm not faulting you. Sure. I'm, I'm just wondering what, what more hasn't been tried. Look, I think what, the, what we started to do when I was there, and it's continued to today, is, is we speak to local leaders, local church leaders, um, local people on the ground, doctors, people in these communities, because they are more effective at carrying these messages. The people that are not getting vaccinated are people that don't trust the government. They're not, by and large, the people who are going to listen to President Biden are vaccinated. So they're trying to use these other means. And this is my point about why it's so unfortunate that people who could be helpful 
um, are not being helpful. Uh, I did see some some data today, and it's preliminary, which shows that with with uh, Omicron, that that this may cause some people who are not vaccinated to reconsider getting vaccinated. I hope that's true. Uh, I think we should always keep the door open. And we should note that Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has said that he's not going to allow a shutdown of the government over this issue. And he has been very pro-vaccine, even spending, I think, campaign money to run pro-vaccine ads in his home state of Kentucky. So it's not all Republicans, but certainly too many. No, no question. Andy no Slavitt, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Coming up next to the hunt for Omicron, CNN goes inside a lab where officials are trying to detect the new variant. Plus, new details on a story you saw right here on The Lead. One young Afghan girl sold into marriage while cameras rolled because their family needed the money to afford to live. She's now talking to CNN. Stay with us. In our health lead now, right now, the race is on to catch and stop the new COVID variant in its tracks. But how? CNN's Diane Gallagher got a rare access to a lab on the cutting edge of detecting the ever-changing virus. This is the front line in the hunt for Omicron in the U.S. After you finish that often uncomfortable COVID test. You're doing great. Perfect. Next nostril. It's usually shipped to a place like Mako Medical Laboratories, just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. 10,000 square feet, just COVID processing. Mako sequences samples taken in more than 40 states. 30,000 per day is how many we're processing right now, so that's about 100,000 or so per week. Labs like this are key in detecting the Omicron variant in the United States because of what they do after identifying a positive test. As of right now, we are at the point where we're sequencing every positive that we get. Genomic sequencing, complicated and expensive testing that reveals the precise genetic lineage of the virus, is the only way to identify new COVID-19 variants. Mako was one of just over 60 labs that does sequencing for the CDC's National Strain Surveillance Network. I would say it takes between two to three days to actually fully get the sequence from confirming a sample as positive to library prepping the DNA and then to actually sequencing that library. The World Health Organization and the CDC declared Omicron a variant of concern after it was flagged by scientists in South Africa. A mutation in the Omicron variant causes a peculiar test result called an S-gene dropout. N-gene is the blue curve, and then the green curve is the S-gene. It would normally be up there with them? Yeah. Typically, they're all grouped pretty closely together. Making a suspicious case easy to spot for expedited sequencing. We have about six samples right now that have that signature S-gene dropout. But sequencing is required to confirm Omicron because it isn't the only variant with that type of marker. Scientists at Mako say they've seen many different variants throughout the pandemic. Some, like Delta, become the dominant strain, while others fade quickly or never take off. Right now, there's no way to know what type of impact Omicron could have on the U.S. But they agree that when it comes to cracking COVID, knowledge is power. That every time it transmits from a person to another person, it's another chance for the virus to mutate and change into something different. So, you know, being able to monitor it, it really highlights the importance of testing, right? Because without the testing, you really have no baseline to understand what's going on. 
Now, I just spoke with the lab and one of those so-called suspicious samples came back and it was not Omicron, but they added another one. So right now there are six of those suspicious samples that are currently in the sequencing process. It should be wrapped up sometime tomorrow, they say, and then they'll report it out to the CDC. But Jake, of course, a lab like this gets tens of thousands of new COVID tests to sample each day. And so these numbers are going to continue to be fluid and are likely going to change in the days and weeks to come. Fascinating story. CNN's Diane Gallagher in North Carolina. Thank you so much. Let's talk about this all with CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Dr. Sanjay Gupta. A rare treat. We have him in studio. Thank you. Thank you for slumming it here in uh, D.C. (laughs) with us. We appreciate it. How important are labs like the one Diane went to uh, in in fighting the spread? They're really important because they're going to find these these variants. You know, you get a positive test and then you want to find out the genomic sequence to figure out, is this Delta? Is this Omicron? The thing that strikes me, though, still, Jake, is that we're doing about a million and a half tests a day. That's not that many. You know, you may remember uh, several months ago, a year ago, we were saying we need to be doing 20, 30, 40 million tests a day. We never got to that point. So it's great that we're doing more sequencing, but it's still of a very small denominator. If we're serious about, you know, stopping or slowing the spread, we need to be testing a lot more. Now, Dr. Fauci said last night, maybe we'll get to the point where we have 500 million tests a month out there. That would be a, a more robust sort of surveillance system. It seems like the only way to stop this, yeah. that testing and, and the vaccinations. Vision on it. So we've been warned since the beginning of the pandemic how much more challenging it is to contain the virus in winter, which is obviously what we're approaching right now. Uh, Biden plans to extend the mask mandate for domestic travel, increase booster outreach, make at-home testing more accessible. Um, which one of these efforts do you think will make the biggest impact on containing this virus? Well, I think, you know, the, the vaccines and the boosters will make the biggest impact in terms of illness, which I think is the biggest thing because hospitals become overwhelmed. This is going back to the early days of flattening the curve. We now have that really important tool to, to, to decrease the likelihood someone will get severely ill. But I think sometimes we have forgotten or not paid as much attention to masks. You know, it's like we're being drenched in virus right now. These are our umbrellas. If we wear them, we're going to be far less likely to become infected in the first place. Omicron, Delta, whatever variant it may be. And then, you know, the testing, like we're talking about. So many people have called me saying, hey, I'm thinking about having a holiday party. We're all vaccinated. Anything else we should be doing? I said, hey, look, if you can get the 15-minute the test and answer the question you're really trying to answer, which is, am I contagious? You should do that. And therefore, when you show up or people are coming over to your house, you have a pretty good idea that A, they're vaccinated. B, they're not contagious and going to spread when they're at that event. So here's this interesting study that your, your division here at CNN, the health, the health team, uh, came up with. A CNN analysis found a 50% higher risk of dying from COVID in states that voted for Trump, red states, than in the states that voted for Biden, the, the, the blue states. Um, Andy Slavitt just argued it's a messaging issue with anti-vaxxers who are predominantly, but not exclusively, uh, uh, pro-Trump. But it's not only that, right? I mean, it's not just the MAGA Republicans who are resistant to this? No, it's not. I mean, you know, the, there's, there's a, a, a pretty heterogeneous mix of people who, who uh, have decided not to get vaccinated for all sorts of different reasons. A lot, a lot of it is, you know, frankly, bad messaging even from the medical community. I mean, there's been terrible studies that have come out in the medical journals, some of them even peer-reviewed, which have really been sowing a lot of doubt, creating a lot of chaos in, in this area. Ultimately, it is bad messaging, but it's coming from all sorts of different sources. But ultimately, the vaccines, it is a proof that the vaccines do make a huge difference because you can correlate what you're describing, this, this, uh, this likelihood of contracting COVID, getting sick from COVID, dying from COVID, 
with vaccines. New York and Mississippi, earlier days before the vaccines, they were pretty similar at one point in terms of deaths per 100,000. Post-vaccines, New York dropped about half uh, of what Mississippi is now, Hmm. almost all vaccines. So Africa CDC, which is a public health agency on that continent, says that Africa has seen a 20% increase in COVID cases in the last four weeks, mostly driven by countries in the South, which has seen a 153% increase. What do these statistics alone tell you about this new variant, Omicron? Well, if you look at what's happening in South Africa, it's a really interesting picture. You know, you've seen these different waves over time. You know, the original variant, you see beta, delta. I think what's really important here, the context of where we start, uh, South Africa in particular, where, where, which is driving most of this surge, they were having sort of a lull. This is late spring. It was kind of quiet there. So when you say that they've had a significant increase, it started from a relatively small number. And I think really importantly for us here in the United States, there wasn't a lot of Delta circulating over there. Mm. So Omicron became the, the dominant variant, but it wasn't really competing against anything. We don't know that it will be able to outcompete Delta here. Delta may still remain the dominant strain. At one point in South Africa, as you know, uh, Jake, beta was the dominant strain. Everyone thought, well, that's going to happen all over the world. It didn't. So we'll have to see what happens with Omicron. Huh. And researchers have been studying the difference between the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine uh, in U.S. veterans. Yeah. They found over about five months, veterans who got the Pfizer vaccine had a greater risk, about 70% higher, of getting hospitalized from covid than those who got the Moderna vaccine. I'm a Pfizer guy, I, I need to say, um, but plain and simple, is Moderna the better vaccine? I, I don't know that we can say that still yet. You know, initially it was interesting because the, uh, the very first recipients of vaccines got the Pfizer vaccines. They were the most vulnerable, but they were also you know, older and, and ha- had higher risk factors. So they seemingly did not do as well. The Moderna vaccine is also a higher dose than the, uh, than the Pfizer vaccine. You know, Pfizer's 30 micrograms, Moderna's 50. So, you know, um, for the booster, 100 for the actual shot. So it could have something to do with that. But they're both, if you really look at that data, they're still very good at preventing serious illness. There was a slight uptick in hospitalization, but overall, they're still pretty comparable. All right. Sanjay Gupta, good to have you in studio and good to see you. Thanks so much. Drama inside the courtroom of actor Jesse Smollett's trial, including an attorney claiming that the judge lunged at her. The wild details next. Breaking news in our national lead, drama unfolding in just the last few minutes in that trial of actor Jesse Smollett, who is accused of lying to police and staging a fake racist and homophobic attack against himself. Moments ago, Smollett's defense attorneys called for a mistrial after the testimony from the two brothers who claimed that the former Empire actor orchestrated the hoax attack on himself back in 2019. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now live from outside the Chicago courtroom. And Omar... One of the attorneys got quite emotional after claiming that the judge lunged at them. What is going on? Yeah, Jake, there has been some crying, some accusations of physical intimidation by the judge, a call for a mistrial. Things are cooling down a little bit right now, but this basically began when Olabinjo Osendero, or otherwise known as Ola, was being questioned about potential homophobia. And some text, uh, text exchange was brought up where he referred to someone as a fruit. And the defense attorney asked if he would use that language to describe a woman. Well, the judge then made a comment saying that we're now getting into something collateral. The defense called for a sidebar, 
came back and said they would be requesting a mistrial because the judge should not have made, in part, because the judge should not have made a comment like that in front of the jury on what they argued was a main part of their case, that homophobia could have been a potential reason for a real attack on Jesse Smollett. Well, the judge, or that same attorney, I should say, then claimed the judge lunged at her physically in a sidebar. The judge denied that he did that lunging. He denied the mistrial. And that's when things started getting very testy back and forth between a lot of attorneys. In particular, a separate defense attorney said that the judge had been making nasty faces on the bench every time one of their objections from them was sustained, specifically saying, I noticed snarls multiple times to which the judge shot back, you're great at facial expressions, as he denied he was making his own facial expression. So there was a break call, jur the jury was sent out of the room, and now we are back to cross-examination in a more calm fashion, but it is just emblematic of the high emotions we have seen throughout this trial. Jake, today maybe the most so. Bizarre. And how did these two brothers describe Jesse Smollett's plan for this attack on himself in, in their testimony today? Well, maybe the most succinct description came from Ola, who's currently testifying, but earlier today he described it as a crazy idea that Jesse Smollett would want to have two MAGA supporters or President Trump supporters beat him up and as part of a fake hate crime and then to post it on social media. And that is sort of the crux of where prosecutors have tried to keep not just Ola, but his brother Bola Osendera as well, Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. There was an outcry after viewers on the, of the lead saw a report about a young Afghan girl forced into a child marriage. Coming up next, some good news on her journey back to safety. Stay with us. Breaking news just moments ago, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill to avoid a government shutdown, but we are not out of the clear just yet. The resolution now goes to the Senate, where a group of Republican senators are threatening to shut down the U.S. government because they object to President Biden's vaccine mandate for private companies. The U.S. government will run out of funding Friday at midnight if the Senate fails to pass this bill. And our world lead, new details on that gut-wrenching story you saw first on the lead last month. A nine-year-old Afghan girl sold to a stranger as a child bride. Bride is not even really the right word. So her family would have enough money to eat. There was global outcry after we told you the story of Parwana. And people from across the world asked how they could help her. How could they help other young girls in Afghanistan, and we are happy to report that one charity was able to assist in reuniting Parwana with her family. She spoke with CNN's Anna Corrin, who broke the story about her hopes and dreams for her future. An Iranian love song plays from a cassette as a driver navigates his way through the snow-dusted Lehman Valley in northwestern Afghanistan. Crowned in the back of his station wagon is a mother and her six children, who've just left behind a life of constant struggle and hardship, all they've ever known. Among them, nine-year-old Pawana. Our cameraman Siddiqui asks her how she's feeling. I'm so happy, she says, with a beaming smile. CNN met Pawana, dressed in pink, in an internally displaced camp in Bagdi's province back in October. 
Her father claims he was selling her to feed the rest of the family as a humanitarian crisis grips the country. He'd already sold his 12-year-old into marriage and told CNN that unless his situation improved, he would have to sell his four remaining daughters as well, including the youngest, just two. If I didn't have these daughters to sell, he asks, what should I do? Pawana's buyer, who lived in a nearby village, confirmed he was taking the nine-year-old as his second wife. I'm 55 years old. I have a wife with four daughters and a son. I bought her for myself. I will wait till she becomes older. CNN was granted rare access to film the final payment and handover. The buyer asked for it to take place at a house in his village and not the camp for security reasons. He paid a total of 200,000 Afghanis, just over 2,000 US dollars for Pawana, in land, sheep and cash. This is your bride, please take care of her, says Pawana's father. Of course I will take care of her, replies the man. As he drags her away, she whimpers. Moments later, she digs her heels into the dirt, refusing to go, but it's hopeless. CNN's story caused an outcry. Now in a distressing story out of Afghanistan, showing the heart. The network was inundated with offers of help from the public, aid organizations, and NGOs wanting to assist Pawana and the other girls featured in our story. The US-based charity Too Young to Wed took the lead. Its founding executive director, Stephanie Sinclair, has been working to end child marriage and help vulnerable girls around the world for almost 20 years. She says the perfect storm is brewing in Afghanistan, and it's the girls that are suffering. I know these stories are difficult to watch and they're difficult to do, and they bring around a lot of concern, but at the same time, we need to keep people understanding that this is happening. We need to keep ringing the alarm bell. Just understand these are real girls and real lives, and they can be changed. Within Baghdad's province, there was widespread backlash towards Pawana's father and the buyer after our story went to air, with claims they'd brought shame on the community. Even the Taliban told CNN the practice is forbidden. I request everyone not to sell their children. Child marriage is not a good thing, and we condemn it. Women's rights activist and US citizen Mabuba Siraj, who chose to stay in Kabul after the Taliban swept to power in August to run her women's shelter, says Pawana's case is just the tip of the iceberg. There is a lot of misery, there is a lot of mistreatment, there is a lot of abuse is involved in these things. And it will keep on happening with the hunger, with the winter, with poverty. As a result of the controversy caused by the story and intervention from the charity, Pawana was allowed to return home after almost two weeks with the buyer's family. Since Pawana has been rescued, I'm very happy for that, says Pawana's father. He admitted to CNN that under duress from the community and some local media outlets, he changed his story out of embarrassment for what he had done and apologised. The buyer is unreachable for comment, but the debt is still outstanding. Too Young to Wed then organised to have Pawana, her mother and siblings removed from the camp with the father's permission. Their four-hour journey to neighbouring Harad province was broken up with some childhood fun. 
before arriving at the motel. For children who've only ever lived in a tent, the novelty of being warm, fed and safe wasn't wearing off. They rescued me. They've given me a new life, says Pawana. I thank the charity for helping me. A few days later, they moved into the safe house. Pawana's mother, 27-year-old Reza Ghul, has never lived in a house. She was sold into marriage at 13 and has since had seven children, six of whom were girls. Most days in the camp, she would beg for food and often her family would go to sleep hungry. Now all she wants is to give her children a better life. I have a dream, a wish they go to school and start an education, she says. I have a lot of wishes for them. Too Young to Wed has already begun distributing aid to Pawana's impoverished camp, among others. While the small charity is prepared to bridge the gap, they're calling on the large aid organisations to step up. These are communities that have relied on international aid for the last 20 years. And so with a lot of that aid stopping, these people didn't stop needing support. We can't let them pay the price because ultimately girls always pay the biggest price. I speak to Pawana on Zoom through my colleague Basia. Hello, Pawana. I'm Anna. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. I'm so happy. I'm safe. I rescued. Then she asks, when are you sending me to school? She wants to study and become a doctor or a teacher. But fairy tale endings are few and far between for girls in Afghanistan, even more so now than ever. Anna Corrin, CNN. Our thanks to Anna Corrin for that fantastic reporting. Two major sports organizations taking two quite different approaches over the missing tennis champion. Legendary sportscaster Bob Costas will join us to discuss next. In our sports lead, the Chinese government is firing back after the Women's Tennis Association decided to immediately suspend all tournaments in China amid concerns for the safety of tennis star Peng Shuai. The Chinese government says it rejects any move that, quote, politicizes sports. Meanwhile, just two months out from the Beijing Winter Olympics, the International Olympic Committee is taking a very different tact. The IOC spoke with Peng in a second video call this week, but would not release any clips from the call. Joining us live to discuss legendary sports broadcaster and CNN contributor Bob Costas. Bob, good to see you. Why have these approaches from these two powerful sports bodies been so different? Well, the IOC is in bed with China. Beijing hosted the Olympics in 2008, Summer Games. They did it in spectacular fashion, but even then it was apparent to many of us that the IOC was aiding and abetting a problematic regime, and then they go back for the Winter Games in 2022, and in between they staged the Winter Games in Sochi. It's very troubling, their affinity for authoritarian regimes. So it's pretty clear that in the video uh, interview with Pang uh, a week or so ago, they were just giving China cover. Um, It was pretty clear that it was coached and it was all a setup. Meanwhile, you've got not just the IOC, you got the NBA and you got Nike and various individual sports stars in the United States who have significant investments in China, where the sports market is huge. 
And some of those people are very outspoken, as they have a right to be, and maybe in general you and I would agree with their viewpoints, very outspoken and sometimes offer sweeping condemnations of their own admittedly imperfect country, the United States. But when it comes to China, perhaps the world's leading human rights abuser, given its size and its, and its wherewithal, their mom, very, very few have anything to say. In fact, some object to any criticism of China. Meanwhile, China's playbook is always to shut down all criticism, to reject it out of hand, and then to exact some kind of price. When Daryl Morey, who then was in the front office of the Houston Rockets, tweeted something to the effect of stand with Hong Kong, all of a sudden Rockets games were not on China TV. And Amazing. the Rockets were a popular team because Gao Ming was the first big-time Chinese star in the NBA. And just this week, Ennis Cantor of the Celtics criticized China. Celtics games gone, disappeared from Chinese TV. Just incredible. In the minute and a half I have left, uh, I want to ask you about baseball because Major League Baseball owners last yeah. night voted for this lockout after players and owners failed to reach a new labor agreement. We're about two months from spring training starting. Mm -hmm. Do you expect this is going to get resolved before then? Yeah, in fact, um, I have to agree with the approach of Commissioner Manfred and the owners here. There have been three lockouts in the past, and every time, not a single game was lost. There have been multiple strikes, and multiple games have been lost, some 1,700 total games through the years lost. When you go into a season without a collective bargaining agreement, then you leave the door open for a strike. So now, with the lockout happening in early December, they've got a long runway between now and spring training or opening day, and fans, by and large, don't care about the issues as much as they care about seeing their teams play. So they've got time now to work these issues out, and there are many of them be between now and spring training. The last time baseball had a lockout or a strike was 94, which did result in several years of drops in attendance, loss of popularity for the great game yeah. of baseball. I is that what baseball might be facing again? I don't think so. Um, they're awash in money. The question is how to distribute it. Um, there are some inequities there. Uh, Max Scherzer this season, who just signed with the Mets this coming season, if they play, his individual compensation might be roughly equal to the entire payroll of the Baltimore Orioles and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Both baseball, because they want competitive teams, and the Players Association want to address that because the Players Association wants those payrolls to come up. Baseball wants those lower market teams to be able to be at least reasonably competitive. They ought to see a mutual interest there and there are various devices that they could, they could hit upon to address it. Bob, it's always great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jake. Running on sugar, CNN was on board the first flight using a new type of alternative fuel. But is it too pricey to be sustainable? Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series now, your future commercial flights could be fueled by food scraps. After a successful United Airlines flight from Chicago to D.C. on Wednesday ran on a mixture of corn and sugar. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine finds out how United made one man's trash another man's jet fuel. Our first ever 100% sustainable fuel flight. From the moment you step on board, it is clear this is not your regular flight. The passengers are executives and politicians. <laughs> Flown by test pilots, this plane is labeled experimental. Since the fuel on board is not traditional jet fuel, this is what's called sustainable aviation fuel, processed from sugar and corn. It is powering this United Airlines 737 in one of its two engines, a first 
for a flight carrying passengers. This is an important and historic moment for global aviation. United CEO Scott Kirby says this test could one day combat climate change. The Biden administration's goal is no aviation carbon emissions by 2050, an industry that contributes about 3% globally. Sustainable aviation fuel cuts emissions by up to 80%, but it is up to eight times more expensive than regular fuel and right now in limited supply. But it is a start with electric airplanes too far in the future. There's simply no battery technology, even theoretical technology, that has enough energy density that you could put enough batteries on the airplane to get an airplane this big with this many people flying this far. And so what works in a lot of other transportation industries won't work for aviation. This test touched down in Washington with a message. Airlines want tax credits to lower the cost and the FAA to approve the fuel more widely. Manufacturer Viren says this fuel is so molecularly similar to jet fuel, it is a direct replacement. It means all the infrastructure, the planes, the engines, everything's ready to go today, right now. So this hopefully someday is not really a big event, it's just the normal way we do things. United Airlines says these tests will continue, but it says now the ball is in the court of the government to raise the limit of sustainable aviation fuel on a plane like this, which will thereby lower the cost. But by the way, Jake, this is the plane used in the test. It's a normal Boeing 737 MAX 8. It's about to go out and fly passengers again, albeit this time with normal jet fuel on board. That's the beauty of this, just a drop-in replacement, Jake. Fascinating. Pete Montine, thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tamper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of our show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.